So if I know everything about content marketing strategy, it's highly likely that I'm going to also talk about target audiences or buyer personas. My guest today is Jeff Coyle. He is the co-founder and chief strategy officer for Market Muse. Uh, before that, Jeff was VP of search at Tech Target, where he built a 30-person content optimization team. And prior to founding Market Muse, he also worked for portfolio companies from Excel KKR, which is a tech-focused private equity firm with over $10 billion under management. Jeff, uh, welcome. Hey, thank you so much, Eric. Really appreciate the time. So, so let's kick it right off here. Um, what is the hardest part of B2B content marketing? Wow. Uh, yes, yeah, so I think the, I mean, currently, I think everybody in B, if you have a B2B company, if for the most part, you have people that understand they, that you have to have a culture of content. You have to have content. I think the only companies who are still kind of bucking that are ones who believe that they're going to fuel their entire flame with outbound and cold calling, which they do exist. But after 2020, very few of them are still operating full time because that was a really tough tactic to have in place from March to July of last year. Um, and a lot of them have had to pivot. So really, if you're in B2B uh, technology or you know thereabouts having content marketing, it's no longer an option, right? But now it's really about, I think there's a lot of folks who um, want a piece of that budget internally. And the hardest part about it in internally that when I'm speaking with clients who work and they're focused on B2B technology is to say, how much of this should I actually be spending on content versus promotion versus research? Um, and then there's still people who are bucketing uh, technical or, you know, like website tasks along with content marketing. They're not separating those line items. So the toughest part when I'm is not def, not necessarily the tactical side. It's getting budget, enough budget to be able to create the amount of content that's needed to really exhibit one's expertise. Um, it's really just not, it's not just, it can't just be a checkbox as in, I know I have to, you know, have a blog and it's got to be a one per week. Um, and so for a long time, a lot of B2B tech companies, that was their content marketing plan. It was just like, I know I need content. So I just like put it over here and hope it does well. Um, right now, it's really making sure that it's integrated and a major part of your investment. And there's strategy behind it. There's actually, you know, cross team collaboration. So getting somebody to be able to allocate enough resources for it um, and ensuring that everybody understands the strategy is definitely the hardest part of that I see time and time again, just immature from a B2B technology perspective. So. And you've been doing this a while. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're, you're one of the first comers in B2B content marketing. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I guess what I'd be curious to know is from then to now, mm -hmm. today, what separates the winners from the losers in B2B content marketing? Yeah, like you said, I, I know this is year 21 <laughs> for me, actually about year 22, if you want to really count it. Um, about just thinking about content strategy, thinking about lead gen um, and all the channels, you know, omni-channel approach, whether it's paid, whether it's organic, all that type of stuff. Um, and the, uh, the big thing that separates the winners from the losers is 
over time is really having longevity in your content marketing plan. It's not looking for cheap wins. It's not looking for, you know, the quick fix. And it's a focus on quality. It's a focus on comprehensiveness. And it's a focus on what makes you special. Effectively, why is the content that you're creating? You have a great foundation. Maybe that just sets you apart. But what are you building that truly is differentiated um, and tells the story that you're an expert um, and doesn't and thinks about your audience, thinks about what they're going through. And you answer those questions and then you answer the next five questions that maybe they didn't think about. What separates the winners from the losers is the people who are winning now were thinking that way 12, 15 years ago. And it's finally caught their stride. They finally caught their stride and they had a great foundation behind them. Um, over time, you've seen some quick winners who have done more kind of short-sighted things. But what separates them is really the, um, you know, the plan for longevity and an understanding that you put your best foot forward every time with content and you're going to have the most longevity versus just cutting corners and trying to, you know, get quick wins. Not that quick wins aren't out there and I can get into that, but, uh, you know, that's, that, that's, that's something that is really guaranteed from a long-term perspective. So, you know, in this, I mean, we learn as we get older and uh, we get more experience that, you know, the way courts of law work in this country is it's not necessarily whoever does the right thing who wins. It's the person who can afford the best legal team. You know, whoever's got the deepest pockets traditionally in business litigation is the one who wins. And, I wonder, is it the same in B2B content marketing? Do the deep pockets win? You know, it's, it's, a, it's an, I have a couple answers to that question. Um, and I don't think that's always the case, but it is, it does make someone very formidable. Um, so when you're really thinking, I, I like to think about it as, you know, if you're writing content and focused on, um, you know, very differentiated content, but also doing your research and covering, like, for example, the entire buying journey, which I know we can get into a little bit more, more detail. If you're covering everything it means to be about something in your content and you're putting out all that stuff, you have a, you have a great chance to compete with the people with the largest pockets, people with the largest teams. They, when those teams get smart, when those teams are publishing effectively and they're taking on those techniques and that, you know, wisdom, they're hard to beat. Um, so that's where you do get into the situation where you can be faster, better, stronger um, as a less budget with less budget. But when those large teams are fast and smart, they're really, really tough to beat. Um, and that's really where we see now with some of the consolidation in the market, some scary situations, um, you know, because Google, is, for example, is showing more. We call them search engine result features or SERP features. So you'll see the right rail, you'll see a lot, you'll see ads as you always have, you'll see questions and, you know, what they call knowledge graph inclusions and, you know, answers for your questions when you're typing things in. There's a lot less real estate for organic results or free results. Um, so you might see a search result that only has two or three organic results on it. Well, that's a lot less real estate to compete over. Um, so what we're starting to see is um, large, big pocket businesses um, realize that and also realize that they might be able to buy companies that also cover similar topics. 
and they might be able to buy nine of them and start to monopolize the search results. So they've got the right rail, they've got the ads, and they've got three of the seven sites featured on page one. That's the way they can win where you can't, where you only could ever achieve one of those things, even if you were at your best. So you can still win, but they have the opportunity to create monopolized solutions, uh, monopolized situations that you can't without dramatic amounts of money. That's going to have to start being police. And that's kind of your, if you want to talk about the future of search, that's where I can get into more detail. But that's something where um, you can win. There's an opportunity to do things in the blue ocean, like I like to call it, where we're writing content that only we can write. We're not doing something like everybody else can in the red ocean where there's lots of blood. So we're using our own data. We're using our own expertise. We're using our own knowledge to write things that only we could. And that's what makes us special. And when you don't have a large budget and you do that, you can really win over and over and over again. But if you're doing the same thing everybody else is doing, you're going to lose to the big pockets. So, I mean, you're in the bubble. You've been yeah. doing this for a long time. <laughs> you have a very sophisticated tech stack. It's fully integrated. Mm -hmm. um, what is, and you're making a market for a content strategy platform. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so what is your biggest B2B content management pain point? Uh, I mean, for for what is Market Muse in for you. using Market Muse and then everything else to get. No, no, up. not for your customers, but for right. you as you make a market mm -hmm. for trial customers of your SaaS product. Mm -hmm. What is your biggest pain point? Oh, gosh. Our biggest pain point is that when we first launched, the, the market is maturing in front of us. So basically, the perception of what content marketing is, and then now content intelligence and content strategy, um, you know, it kind of didn't exist five years ago, right? So you had people who, you know, they knew they needed SEO. They didn't really know what that was. They had editorial teams. Um, so the biggest pain point in, for us, is positioning exactly what it means to prioritize effectively. For the longest time, 95% of content teams who had an SEO practice or an agency, they were prioritizing what they did based on Google search volume. So they were saying, this keyword gets this much, this many people type it in each month. Uh, so I need to focus on that. And that's all they were using, which has nothing to do with who you are and how you should prioritize what you should do. It doesn't tell you what, where you have authoritative content or where you have expertise. And so everybody was basically taking the same approach. And so we basically had to change the market to start to think about quality and comprehensiveness. So we're building out scenarios uh, where you are prioritizing what you should create, what you should update. And with the goal of positioning yourself as an expert, because it's a lot more than just getting the ranking. When they land on your site, you want to make sure you follow through and satisfy what they were looking for and satisfy their intent. And they feel good about having read your page. Um, and for a long time, I think people were thinking of it, you know, only as, you know, getting the entrance effectively. Um, and so we're really educating the market to, you know, desire to make great decisions and not just spend X amount of dollars on content and hope. I mean, 
mark, you know, mark, content marketing and content strategy makes content marketing predictive. We can predict whether something's going to be successful in organic search. Um, and that's what makes marketing media special. It's not a black box. We can say, yeah, you have to invest in 20 wonderful articles, Eric, or else you're not going to be able to grow at all against, you know, buyer persona development as a concept. And you might say, wow, that's too much for me to invest, uh, you know, or we might say, whoa, you actually have an easy win there. Go write one great post on this and it's probably going to win. So we are changing it from being a throw and hope to planning, prioritization and execution that you can set a watch to. And that's what makes it really different. So nobody knew that that was possible. And that's where the hardest part for us is. People still think it's a guessing game. Well, I mean, in terms of predicting what is going to rank from an organic standpoint, you know, that's doable. But the truth is, I mean, most of the approaches for achieving that are pretty boring. (laughs) You know, you've got to write something that someone else has written or you had to build a taller skyscraper, whatever the heck it might be, right? (laughs) Um, You know, you think about something like taking putting out a new idea, a fresh idea, a fresh take on something, really leading with a new idea and publishing thought leadership content, it's much tougher to predict the success of something like that. Like some of the best ideas I've written about, which I still think are great ideas, no one ever read about because they didn't use the keywords that were predictable because they were new ideas. So how do you sort of draw the delta? How do you find the delta between thought leadership content and I guess SEO opportunity? That's a great question. I love that question. That's like everything that I like believe and love about this game and this, you know, this, this industry. It's, I like to think about it in two ways in addition to topic modeling. So topic modeling, if somebody were an expert on a topic, what are the concepts that they would naturally know? So if I was an expert on this thing, I would naturally know something about this other thing. Those are related to one another. So if I know everything about content marketing strategy, it's highly likely that I'm going to also talk about target audiences or buyer personas within my collective of knowledge. And, you know, and if not, it's going to be weird. So if I go out and I write one article about content marketing strategy and that's it, I'm probably not the world's leading expert in content marketing strategy. And so for thought leadership on concepts that no one else has talked about, I still need a foundation of content that sets the standard for my authority. I have to cover, let's say my concept is, um, I'll give you, I'll give you a great example. There's a really amazing thought leader. His name's Kevin Indig, good friend of mine. He's a wonderful search engine optimization professional um, and content strategist. Um, he wrote one of the better articles ever written on internal linking. So how you should link your pages together on your site. Um, and he did it in a very novel way, used a lot of n- new jargon or jargon that hadn't been written about um, in this way. Um, that took a long time to gather steam. But if Kevin didn't have 500 posts that told the story that he was an expert on search, he could have never had the presence with that internal linking art. So when, even though he claimed that it was a brand new name or did these other things, had he not had that existing authority, that momentum on those topics, it would have never found its way to coming up for 
a pile of other related searches that people were searching for, in addition to his unique novel jargon. And so where you're looking, a page ranks for dozens, thousands. I have a page in a client site that ranks for 190,000 words, right? You know, it's not about all those things, but it's a little about some of them and a lot about some of them, the relatedness of concepts. So you need content that tells the story that you're the expert on the stuff that is table stakes to be able to then stand out with your blue ocean thought leadership content. When I say blue ocean, I love taking something that only I know, right? Like you said, that the, the things that came out of your brain um, and um, pairing them and, and making sure that you're pointing to them logically from related concepts that you've written about, or you're using product data in our case, right? So we, you know, the mission statement for us is we set the standard for content quality. That's market news. So when we do thought leadership or data journalism or blue ocean content, we want to show that we can tell you whether a content item is high quality or not. So we can go look at, you know, a post from a popular speech, right? And say, hey, this person actually doesn't know what they're talking about with regard to this topic. And you can tell because of this document, you know, so we do some interesting things there. We can also look at an industry of the top 10 websites about X and say, who's got the best content amongst this group, right? That's true thought leadership and no one else can do that except us. So it's about how much of it is something that only you can do. And then do you have the foundation of the table stakes expertise? And then your novel ideas can win. In um, some crowded uh, B2B information spaces, right. um, there are sort of these sort of celebrities that do really well with generic content that isn't really nuanced and isn't really specific. And, you know, they do offer some tremendous insights for newbies. You think about like Neil Patel or uh, Brian Dean or uh, really any of these uh, sort of celebrity SEOs that do offer tremendous insight for newbies. Uh, but, you know, you can't really compete against somebody like that if you're just coming to the table for the first time. You need some way to sort of separate yourself from the pack. So when you're dealing with a client like that, how do you help them find a unique differentiator in a crowded information marketplace? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. Um, and in, in the search space, it's really about um, – there is three things that I always advise. One of them is if you are in a tough space where you have a deadly competitor, right? You have a competitor who is doing a lot. You've really got to take the time and invest money in, I, I reference it as competitor cohort analysis, but you've got to know everything they've done. You've got to know everything they are currently doing, what's their current, and I'll, I'll walk through a few ways to do this, um, and where they will likely go in the future to be able to put a dent into their, their groove, really. Um, you know, for some, for some of the examples that you, you just named, they each have a, they each have a different strategy. Um, very, very unique strategy. One is a small footprint, high off page strategy, which is probably esoteric if somebody's listening to it, but heavy focus on site, external citations and a small content inventory. There's one way to skin that cat. The other one is mass volumes of ghost written content. 
that isn't written by the person who's associated with the content. There's a way to skin that cat too. Um, and you'll have the same situation no matter who you're competing against. If you're in B2B tech, you're competing against G2 crowd, you're competing against software advice, you're competing against Captera, you're competing against tech target. You know, you're competing against these people, uh, you know, if you're in um, special interest, you're competing against IAC, you're competing against Red Ventures entities, you know, these large entities, you've got to learn who you're up against to be able to then say, whoa, what is our true unique differentiator? And the way that I look at it is the amount of content where they're likely to post content, where they're likely to update, but also what stages of the buy cycle are they not covering? What, what angles are they not touching on? Or where have they covered these things poorly? with low quality content, where I have a unique or novel insight. When I publish more of that, I can start to, I call it chopping down the tree. So I can start to chop down the tree with my unique insight again and again and again. I know this industry better than they've exhibited that they do. So I'm gonna really dive deep into this industry or they're not covering the early stage awareness phase of this topic. The days of one topic, one page, baloney. <laughs> it was always garbage when someone said that. But no, it's not that. That isn't the case. It's one topic, one journey needs to be covered. And the people, so, so, who, people who think it's cannibalization to do multiple pages against one keyword, which a lot of people still tout, um, you beat them by understanding the customer and the journey and covering the journey. So if you think about conventional business planning, you know, right. you have a SWOT analysis. You look at the strengths, weaknesses. Right. What are they? Strengths, weaknesses, uh, threats. Yeah, threats. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there's a, there's a vowel in there, threats, too. Yeah. What? We'll, Opportunities, we'll leave, right? We'll leave yeah. that unsaid. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but I guess what you're saying is when you, when you do this cohort analysis, mm -hmm. are you also sort of looking for vacuums? Are you sort of looking for what's a vacuum to fill? Yep. Yeah, uh, that's the concept. A lot of people were phrased that vacuum finding or whatever as um, niche niche finding or uh, niche analysis. Uh, but you're yeah, you are looking for depending on why you're doing this research in the first place. Some people are looking for websites to buy. They want to find sites that have tons of upside or spaces that have complete greenfield. No one's covered this for some reason. You might you might figure out that there's only weak coverage in you know. Uh, high altitude trail running shoes, <laughs> you know, and you might want to turn that into a business, right? Um, but, or you, or it might just be that nobody's really covered, um, you know, warehouse management software for vaccines, right? Because just no one's covered it really well and why it's novel for that specific use case. You know, so when you do your analysis, you can do that by looking externally at the market and how much interest there is. But that's flawed as a process because you're not cross-referencing against what you've done already. Like you just said with your articles, with your content, what foundation do you already have? Where do you have an easier win? Because I can go write an article on navigational intent. And if you go write that on your site, my same exact article, it'll do better for me because I write about user intent all the time. If you go write the best review ever on the new iPhone, no chance of succeeding. But if you go put that same review on CNET, it's gonna win. You've gotta know your existing authority 
to know where you can put out unique differentiation. If, if you find a niche space that has no competition, whoop de do wonderful. You're really good. Go right, crush it, and win. That still exists. That's a completely different research practice. That's basically a comp- trying to find no competition zones. Um, and what most businesses fall into is just know enough to know what you have to do to beat your competitive cohort or to lean into your existing wins and fill your blind spots. It's the exact analysis of the spot. It's what, where can you lean in and get quick wins? Where can you achieve your goals? How do you achieve your goals and how much investment do you need? Where do you have huge blind spots? And then where do you have competitive threats? Competitive threats can be a site that used to publish 10 times a year and now they publish 20 on the same topic. It could be these people just write better content than you. You need to level up your game. Or it could be you have 90% of your traffic going to one page. So many different situations can be threats to your longevity. Um, and so making sure the mirror is very, very clear is, you know, that's my wish for anyone trying to differentiate because you can differentiate all day, but if 95% of your traffic goes to one page on your site, you're in trouble. You know, Somebody's going to get you. <laughs> a lot of e-commerce uh, companies out there doing paid, mm-hmm. but not really much organic. Yeah. And a lot of them come to me and say, Hey, I want to do organic. You know, and I, I've had them come to me and say, hey, I want to, I want to kill it in organic. And, and uh, you know, my experience is maybe, you know, something I don't. It takes time. You know, there's no way to, if you want to snap your fingers and get traffic, you got to buy it. But if you want organic traffic, you know, you got to ramp that up. And I've had guys come to me and say, hey, I want to just spend big money and make it happen right away. And, you know, I'm a terrible salesperson because I always tell the truth. You know, and I say, I'm sorry, bud, but, you know, we got we got work to do. You got to build a team and we got to make sure we get you, you're measuring things right. And we got the stack integrated and we got a path to purchase. And, oh, you yeah. know, we got some SEO going. We need a keyword strategy. So what do you say to that guy? What do you, I mean, what do you say to that guy who comes in door? Most of the time, those guys bounce and they wind up going back to advertising has been my experience. Um, you know, Thankfully, the e-commerce world is starting to get it, but it's a slow process. Yeah. Um, and the reason is, is that what kind of I mentioned on the top of the show, which was they still think the content goes over here and the products are over here and they're siloed. They're not writing content that speaks to their expertise or the purchase journey. They're just the company that sells dog food. Guess who isn't the company that just sells dog food? the companies who are selling the most dog food online, right? They're actually putting out content that tells the story that they know everything about it. They know everything about you as a, as a customer or a prospective customer, and they're building content that integrates with their buying experience. And so if you feel, for, for an e-commerce site, when I'm confronted, by the way, some of the largest e-commerce sites are our customers. You know, uh, I can drop names, but I usually don't find that to be, Terribly valuable. You can go to our site and see them. Come on, um, man. Drop some names. Big orange one from Atlanta that we probably have all been to. You, you, you know, we, we've got a lot, a lot of them. Every customer, every time they write a content item, it's associated with a market news content brief. Um, and the dream for an e-commerce site, right, is no, it's not about the silo. 
It's not about plopping, sneaking content into a page. It's about does your experience highlight that you understand the purchase journey? And how are you bringing that to the client? The reason why I say that is it's e-commerce intent, purchase intent is important. You have to have an elegant experience. You have to have that, um, the experience to purchase. But the tough part about this game in e-commerce is the largest entities, the one like the Amazons of the world, they play a different game. They get away with a lot more than you can if you're a small e-commerce provider. Um, they have a lot more um, breadth. Uh, they get a lot more, a lot more of a, of a breadth to be very aggressive. Um, and so when you're an e-commerce person, and you're maybe in a mid mid tier, or maybe only in the you know five to ten, fifth to tenth. You have to beat them with expertise, and you can't do it with a blog that has one link on the bottom right. You can't do it with a blurb of text on the bottom of a category page. You have to really invest in a user experience that shows that you know the buyer so that they will trust you, so that they will buy from you, especially if your product isn't differentiated. If you're selling the same thing they are, you can only win with content. I don't know if this is useful, but sometimes the way that I'll explain it is I'll say, you know, you got to have editorial content as well as advertising content. The editorial yep. content is written in a journalistic style and it's impartial. It's not a a puff piece. It's not a house organ. It's right. designed to inform someone who has a problem they're trying to solve that your solution, you know, can help them with. Yeah, um, absolutely. And intent changes too. Um, and, and what you see in a search result is actually Google's favored intent. It's not true intent. So the difference of that is Google's trying to decide what the best way to service a particular um, request for a topic or a particular query. And there's a I can get into that for hours and hours of how it works and such. But the important thing is sometimes you could be searching for something that has multiple different intents. It's called intent fracture. You might be looking for what is dog food. You might be looking for different choices. You might be looking for a place to buy it local, you know, local intent is another one. Um, so Google may show a, a sampling of different intents as well. Um, so when you're in a situation where, um, you've got to know and write content that appeals to all of the possible intents if all of them are relevant to your business. Um, and what you see a lot of times is people think that, you know, they'll look at a search result and it's got five definitions on it. They're like, oh, I just need to write a definition. Nope, wrong. You don't deserve to write the definition and have that succeed because you haven't written the rest of the buy cycle. That's the e-commerce problem right now. It's they think that they just have to put transactional content and product content and they don't need to cover the rest of the bias cycle. Or if they do, they want to cover it over here because they can't really attribute that to average order size and closed business. They don't realize that if they go write that over here, all boats rise over there. Um, so the best e-commerce teams are recognizing that. And the other thing is Google's changing the way that they detect intent constantly and what, what the right intent is. So you look at common product searches that a year ago, five out of the 10 results were actual products or category pages. 
not anymore. Right now, they're top 12 uh, hiking shoes for, you know, high altitude runners. And, you know, my tips for high altitude running and the products I use, you know, you've got this whole group of affiliate marketers writing great content that's written by experts about their choice for products. So a couple of years ago, you had, you know, Amazon's best trail shoe. You had, you know, the Columbia's shoe and a bunch of other category pages from Walmart and Target. Not any longer. You're intermittently seeing an expert article from this person. You've got wire cutter there. You've got, you know, their, their best tips. So you've got to keep identifying what content is needed. And if your business, you're sitting there like, I don't want to write all those different types of pages. That's not who we are. We just sell this stuff online. You're going to go like this <laughs> over time. You've got to do it. You have to be thinking about all the different ways people want to consume information about your product. Even if you're selling socks, I always joke around about it. He's selling a white sock. You still have to know the purchase journey. <laughs> B2B content marketing is critical, but mm -hmm. it is just one piece mm -hmm. of the digital marketing puzzle. Mm -hmm. To understand all the pieces and how they fit together, download my Essential Digital Marketing Skills Guide and get an overview of the most in-demand marketing skills. And you can download it at ericschwartzman.com forward slash essential skills. Now, Jeff, what is topical authority and how do you build it? That's a great question. Um, topical authority is basically some of the things that I've been speaking about. It's if I were that expert, if I were an expert on a topic, I knew everything there was to know about something. What would the, my book look like? What would the collect, what would my encyclopedia look like? What are all the concepts that I would cover? And so what Market Muse, you know, the, the business that I've co-founded, that's one of our core technologies. We're able to look at massive quantities of content and effectively distill it into a topic model that says, if I were going to cover this topic well, here's the other things that need to be included to tell the story that I'm the expert. Cool thing that we do is we can measure it. We're the only people that can measure it other than the search engines. Um, and the, we know exactly the way that we do it. They do it, and we're trying to build out a way for marketers to have access to that in a in a way that can say, where do I have an authority? Where I am high authority? What do you do with that? Right? Maybe you're authoritative on this topic. Well, go write an article on something pretty close to it. You've already got momentum. Go write an article on that for a specific industry, for a specific use case, a different stage in the funnel. Guess what? That stuff does better quicker. That's your quick wins. You just, you know, we can just do so much by knowing how much power we have. So topical authority is important. You know how to build it. Like you mentioned, it's not always that fun, but also what do you do with it when you have it? Some people think, you know, that, okay, I'm done. I've written all I can about this topic. It's not true. <laughs> there's, ne there's never an end. There's never a there there. There's always things that you can use your power to succeed even more, even more. By the way, a couple of questions ago, you asked me about a few sites and hey, we can never compete with these folks. When you're doing things using certain techniques that require you to have a small footprint of content, you are susceptible to someone taking the, act, taking the strategy that I just stated and writing that great next piece because they're not gonna write that next, great next piece. Yeah, so. So, um, 
I'm publishing my second book this spring. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, for me, one of the big differences between um, newbies and advanced mm-hmm. uh, online businesses is the stack. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like if they've been around a while, they uh, companies that are more sophisticated generally have mm-hmm. an integrated collection of software tools behind the scenes that uh, make it possible to do more with less and to pass information from one uh, uh, part of the business to another. So they allow for cross-functional collaboration. And my experience has been with newbies that they don't really understand that. It's more about, hey, let's build a website. Mm -hmm. You know, there's more focus on the presentation layer. And so I wrote this book, uh, The Digital Pivot, uh, to talk about from a big picture perspective, what a, what a an online business looks like. Because digital marketing is, again, just part of an online business. Um, and, you know, other people have to be able to use information to be able to act on it. If I generate leads and sales can't close and, and finance can't bill and ops can't service and, and customer service can't support, you know, I don't have a business. I, I have, you know, a website and email. And that obviously is going to take a lot of time and energy to compete against companies that are more streamlined, that are passing information back and forth. So, you know, it takes, I think, right now to get that. You kind of have to sit down and read a library. And I feel like I do, I have written the first book that kind of and it's, it's not a technical manual. It's sort of got stories in there of experiences I've had with clients. And I try to keep it light and airy with some anecdotes in there and some humor. And it's a short read. But I finished this book, okay? And it's I just gave the manuscript over to the editor, yes, on Monday. So I'm really psyched about it. It comes out in spring. And it's essentially a book about digital marketing. It's a digital marketing book, and I'm a digital marketing consultant. But digital marketing is a thick topic. Digital marketing is content marketing, SEO, blogging, podcasting, lead generation, social media, email marketing. And I have a chapter on each of those in the book. But how does a guy like me market this book through content marketing when it's such a thick topic? So I want to use your 20 years of experience for my own selfish reasons here and get your advice on how do I market my book? There's so many ways that we can get into this detail, Um, but I think it's, you know, some of the things we've covered. Um, One, one thing is one book isn't one page, right? That's really your, historically people have marketed eBooks with a single landing page. So you actually have one, or you have one webinar with one landing page, right? So the unique way to promote rich media is not to think about it as one thing. And to, you can do many, uh, many uh, landing pages or many content items can attract somebody to have interest for that book. That's the first way to think about it. So it's the ultimate um, kind of honeypot to generate eyeballs in any possible way that you can think of that then relates to them buying the book. Um, and so the easiest way I always used to speak about this would be, you have an ebook, okay. 
you have wrote one little abstract and you put it on a landing page. That's not enough. It's first of all, it's not enough. You spent so much money on this book or time or energy in your case, writing this great long form book. So what I always like to walk through someone with is to try to figure out who's it for at what stages of the learning journey or client journey does this appeal? What topics are covered? What unique differentiated value do you bring? And are you okay giving away an insight to get a view of the book, knowing that you're only going to get away with reading one insight to then get to the desire to buy the book. Um, and I've done this piles of times with podcasters, with, um, you know, people with books, um, with people with huge catalogs of gated content, very similar strategy. Um, podcasters, you know, transcripts, annotate, annotate your transcripts, improve them, add color, point to your info products. If you've got them within those transcripts and build a pool of content in your, in, in a case where you have a book, you're looking at hundreds of pages, potentially. There's a lot that that's about that pay the books a lot about a lot of things. I need almost an archive or a list of all the concepts that I cover really well. I need to know what differentiated value did I have with each of those segments and potentially turn those things into pages, turn those things into marketing materials that tell the story that I'm appropriate for this user use case. So like, let's just say I don't even cover a particular industry in this book, but if somebody was, you know, in the, you know, uh, you know, microphone business. And if you are promoting your microphone or marketing your microphone, well, this book will be useful. Well, maybe I can, make a story of why people who are in the microphone sales business should read my book. Well, I, maybe I didn't cover that in my book, but I just created a new way to capture people to read my book. So I have one unit, which is the book. I can turn that into an infinite amount of potential places to capture. And I'm doing that by exhibiting my expertise in as many ways as possible. I once took a 200 page book and turned it into about 11,000 landing pages. How? How did you do that? Walk me through the painful. process. Painful, painful and amazing. Um, no, it was it was basically in that case it was early days of uh, early days of this. But we you take it and you work with the editor that wrote the book. How would you cover this? How would you cover that? Some of the pieces were aggregations. Some of the pieces were just for PPC, just for paid. Some of them were editorial in nature. Some of them I just took pages out of the book and marketed them and positioned them well, right? And so the key is you've got this thing that's one thing. It's just like this webinar or just like an ebook or a white paper. Um, it, that white paper can appeal to a lot, of pe a lot of people. It's like value selling your content. You need to think about all the solutions, all the KPIs that it can influence. It's all the pain points it can solve all the people it's for, and all those permutations turn into repurposing opportunities. So if I were building a book, I would focus on the, the sweet spots. I would start to build out, hey, 
I know these are the markets that I'm that I typically get clients in. In your case, if you're selling consulting services, these are my target areas. I want to. I know a lot about the way that they think. Well, I want to connect the dots between how my book perfect is perfect for those audiences. I might even do them in a from an ABM perspective if I were you. If I have a list of clients I want, if I'm at if Boeing's on your list, right? And you want to say like basically why airline industry professionals need my book explicitly. Why airline industry professional? And so I might go through industry wide. I might go even getting into you know specifics. Why you know Delta needs to focus on this. You know you can get into it at any level of specificity, any level of targeting. Um, and when you start to think about many to one with gated content or rich media you start to find your stride in more blue ocean situations. But it's that, it's that one-to-one myth. Don't, it's not about one page. To really rank on a lot of these topics, you need piles and piles and piles of content about them. And that's so, one way to get so, there. So the way I've got this, um, this book is called The Digital Pivot. Mm-hmm. And it's about pivoting to digital marketing. Mm-hmm. So there's a, a chapter on that. Then there's a chapter on analytics. There's a chapter on stacks, automations, and funnels. There's a chapter on SEO. And those are, I sort of position as the fundamentals. Mm-hmm. And then I have a chapter on social media, email marketing, content marketing, blogging, podcasting, digital PR, and lead generation. How would you recommend that I map out topic clusters to promote this, this book? How would I recommend, I mean, you know, are those the clusters? I mean, are, that, are those punch, that? punch line? I mean, that's what Marty Mies does. Um, so basically, I would do research, topic-based research of understand all of these things. I would also, because it's a book that you wrote and research, I would also be documenting um, concepts that you may have in your brain as the unique differentiated value. I would also do topic modeling research um, and look at. The thing each of those topics for each one of those concepts, and then keep diving down, keep digging, keep digging, and keep digging, and, and map out how they collect, how they connect. And look for the vacuum. Look for the intersection of the gap and my unique knowledge and how to fill it. Exactly right. And and so what? That's where your real, your unique content investment probably needs to go in there. You may need some meets minimum content on all of those things, but then you're you may do a deep dive where you see some open space, you know, I'm just making something up. But let's say you dive in and you're looking at and you're like, oh, well, the stack, um, the stack example, not a lot of people are talking about how um, your feedback management software needs to integrate with your subscription billing. So I'm going to go right, I'm going to go dive deep on subscription billing, purchase journey, and feedback management and I'm going to do a big cluster there because that is where I see, um, you know, uh, a lot of gaps in the mar- in, in my target market. No one ever has a really, no one's ever happy with the subscription billing solution, <laughs> you know? So that's, you know, that'd be the example of maybe your expertise from your experience going in with 
your manual research or your automated research if you're using a tool like Mercury. So. Jeff, from a hierarchical standpoint, mm -hmm. talk to us a little bit about pillar content and use me as an example. How would I decide what my pillar content should be versus, you know, where to go deep from a topic cluster standpoint? So a pillar content, um, so there's a couple different naming conventions for topic clusters. But basically it means that I'm building, um, I'm trying to exhibit my expertise with a collection of content. It may be a one-headed pillar, it may be a multi-headed pillar. Um, and let's just say you have no existing content and you're just starting from scratch just for this example. Because if you already have existing content, you may need to move things around and restructure them. But let's just say you're starting from scratch. You're writing content that acts almost like a um, a, a, a overall guide to everything you'd want to know about a concept, but not just informationally. It also could span into the learning journey, somebody going from unknown need to known need to I know I need it to, and I'm in the process to buy, to post-purchase troubleshooting, all the way down into, you know, a champion for my product um, along one topic axis. So in your case, traditional pillar content is someone saying the guide to lead generation, ultimate guide to lead generation. And they write a long form content item and they'd stop, right? Where the, the smart money is doing that, pointing to other relevant support content that tells the story that you're more than just an ultimate guide. On your own um, site, it's your own on, domain. On your own site, you're writing support content that gets into specific use cases, answers common, answers a really specific question, um, targets a particular industry. But you're also writing on that topic across the knowledge journey and the buyer journey. So your long form, let's say, guide as a pillar, you may need multiple versions of that for different audiences, for different uh knowledge, backgrounds, um, and otherwise. So pillar content isn't typically going to be enough. One pillar with support. You're typically going to need pillar with a, uh, a lens of who the purchase, who the um, persona is, um, and then build out with support content, which is going to be on those related topics. You may find out that you have to do many different comprehensive guides, comprehensive walkthroughs. Um, but I like to expand on, against the journey versus uh, always just going subtopics, 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 um, because that can make you um, win quicker, to be blunt, <laughs> against somebody who's just doing basically uh, what you're looking for. I'll just be blunt. What you're looking for is Competitive situations where the competition thinks that topic clusters are just about writing definitions and basic guides for words that they've researched by looking at Google search results. So you're looking for somebody who wrote guide to this. They found a, a related topic. They linked to guide to that, guide to that. You can exploit that situation. And that's very common. You'd be very surprised. So. The traditional topic cluster is what I just described. What you want to do is add value 
to the buyer journey, add value to your target personas, um, and really dive deep to show your expertise and you can win against a traditional topic cluster. So. It's really great advice because, you know, as the editor, uh, the line editor goes through the book mm-hmm. and sends me back the, uh, the markups, I have to then go through it again. So this is great. Now, I'm really glad I asked you this because what I, I'm going to do it. I'm, gonna I'm excited. <laughs> and I'm going to pull out my unique ideas there. And I'm going to get myself an inventory so that at least I have enough of a notation there to jog my memory and to create content about it. You so said that, inventory. That's like my favorite word. So, And, no, and, and the, the key on that is so while you're doing that, um, consciously take notes of what questions did I answer here? And that is so important. It's no what questions you answer. Because in my case, I build content briefs for writers at scale with artificial intelligence. Part of that brief is the topics to include, the questions to answer, and the internal and external links, right? So if you're in, if you've already written the draft, going back through and saying, who, who is this really, tar- who, who really got a lot of value out of this? What questions did I answer? It's almost like a, inversion a brief inversion and that can be really really great for rich media or in this case a book because you can go right you can go answer that specific question um with something else to really market the book yeah, if, if someone wants to check it out you guys have like a, a promo where you can get a free brief right how does that work absolutely um yeah so we have a trial um on, on market muse um where you can go in you can order uh create your own self self-serve process create your own brief um, in uh, this will probably air after the release, but we have uh, Market Muse First Draft, which is a natural language generation platform. We'll actually build some drafts for you, so you can like check them out and tweak them and improve them. Add your expertise, add some production value. It, can st- it starts to kind of give you inspiration that meets your outline, so you can actually build the outline with AI and actually start to see some ways that you possibly could cover it. Um, and really gets you further down the pike for writing. Um, and, um, you know, our goal is to really inspire and amplify subject matter experts um, and also rid the world of low quality content. I don't want there to be a market for two cent content anymore. And I think that by the end of this year, if my dream comes true, I will have done that. <laughs> there will be no market for bad content. So, yeah. So just to wrap it up, um, first of all, let me just say thanks so much for taking the time to do this. You know, it's funny. I do these podcasts. I never really know who I'm talking to before I jump on the call. And I, it's, it's so fun because I always get to talk to really smart people. And because I'm recording it and other people are listening, they always give me really good answers. <laughs> so it's, it's awesome because uh, it's just wonderful to get a brain dump. You've obviously been at it for so long, and I appreciate your time. Just to wrap it up, mm-hmm. um, you know, Looking, one of the things about digital marketing is it's it's not as accessible to small business. And small business is such an important revenue engine in our economy. You know, most people are small businesses. Mm-hmm. And frankly, a lot of them are getting wiped out by Amazon. Oh, yeah. You know? And, uh, you know, I wrote the book really to help small business compete to sort of wake them up to the opportunity because if they don't compete, they're not going to be here anymore. So I guess sort of as a parting shot here, 
Um, any advice for smaller companies who are looking to outsource content creation? Like, how do they wind up not getting these crappy blog posts back from these, you know, just this, just this garbage? Like, I get daily, every morning, a bunch of emails from people who want to write free blog posts for my, and I've, I learned the hard way because I used to say, yeah, send it to me. And then I'd read it and I'd be like, oh my God. And what am I going to do? Then I feel bad, you know, and now I just don't even answer them anymore because I mean, I just get, I just get these nothingness blog posts that are ridiculously awful. So for a small company that doesn't have the resources, they're not going to do it internally. They're going to have to outsource it. How do they not get burned? How do they get good content? Um, I mean, you know, my self-serving answer is make sure that you 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 have an understanding of what you're going to get out of it. Don't don't leave don't don't believe that you're going to write ten articles so that only one of them is successful. It's industry standard for what we call content efficiency, so how much I publish versus what hits my KPIs. It's about ten percent. You can do a whole lot better and be very efficient as a small business. You really can. Um, you have to demand quality. And you have to demand comprehensiveness. Um, and one way to do that is to order your content with a content brief. Whether you build it yourself or not, create a single source of truth for the writer and you to be on the same page. And then you have a very low chance of getting something back that you're not going to like. If you combine the content brief with a throwdown brain extraction of everything that you know that's special, because if I'm working with a lawyer, if I'm working with, you know, someone who's run a hardware store for 50 years, I don't care, right? So if someone, you know, hair, hairdresser, you know, they have so much information in their brain that has never made it to a page, right? So figure out a way to get that out of your brain, even if it's interviews, recorded interviews, conversations. Those people don't like to write. I know I don't like to write, like let's sit down and write, but I'll talk all day, right? Um, get that, get it written. And when you have that single source of truth for the writer, the chance of you getting something that you hate or that you're not proud of goes down to near zero. Well, uh, Jeff Coyle, Chief Strategy Officer with Market Muse, it's been fantastic having you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Eric. I really appreciate it.